I'm John Carter in Moscow, in Havana, Cuba. Now in Kiev, the capital of Ukraine. I'm John Carter in Petra, right here in communist China, reporting from India. Hi, I'm John Carter in the Solomon Islands. I'm John Carter in Soweto, from El Salvador. I'm John Carter in Sydney, Australia. Floods, fires, hurricanes. John Carter will focus today on climate change. Hello, friend. I'm John Carter. Welcome today to The Carter Report. We have a special guest with us today, world-famous scientist Dr. Hugh Ross from Reasons to Believe. And the topic today is climate change. Stay with us. Greater Manila is more than 20 million souls. Almost all these beautiful people are ignorant of the true gospel of Christ. Manila needs Jesus. 35 years ago, John Carter came to Manila. Pastor Carter is returning to Manila with an urgent assignment. Preach the gospel of Christ and the great truths of the Bible. Don't water down the message. Make it plain, make it clear, make it Christ-centered. The Carter Report needs your help now to light a fire in the Philippines. Your gift will help open the doors of bondage, smash the chains of sin, and open the gates of paradise to thousands of lost souls. The churches have sent out an urgent plea for the Carter Report to return. Help us proclaim the true gospel of Christ to the beautiful Filipino people. Please send your support to the address on the screen, visit our website, or call the Carter Report. Welcome today to the Carter Report. My special guest is world-famous scientist, astronomer, astrophysicist, Dr. Hugh Ross. Dr. Ross, we're delighted to have you with us today. Well, thank you. And we're talking about climate change. Uh, before we start, we're here in Southern California and down the road from us, about 100 miles or so, is Loma Linda University. Now, you've got a... You got a boy going there to Loma Linda? Well, I've given talks there and uh, mm -hmm. very well received. And yeah, my younger son is getting a doctorate in clinical neuropsychology at Loma Linda, and he's really enjoyed his experience there. Well, we're just so glad that you've been uh, talking at Loma Linda, and uh, that makes it um, so good because uh, we appreciate Loma Linda very much. Now, today, ladies and gentlemen, we're talking about climate change. Dr. How much hotter is the planet today than it was a hundred years ago? One degree centigrade. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very quick answer. I thought you'd fill it out a little bit for me. <laughs> well, it doesn't seem like much, but it no. took 8,700 years for the temperature to very gradually decline by one degree centigrade. And in the last 70 years, we've completely reversed that. And the <laughs> alarm is it could go up by another one to two degrees centigrade. And so everybody would agree that during the period of human civilization, uh, there has been a time of, of global stability in the climate. Yeah, we're partly uh, responsible for that. There are astronomical cycles that began 8,700 years ago that would have cooled the climate rapidly if it wasn't for the launch of human civilization. And so you've got these astronomical cycles cooling the planet, counterbalanced by human 
launches civilization that warmed the planet, and the two almost perfectly canceled one another off to give us this period of extreme climate stability that has never existed before. So, so it, it would almost appear to the naive mind, the unscientific mind, that there was a, a little bit of divine guidance here. I think so. The divine guidance is not only on the natural cycle side, but also on the human activity side. Because what I find fascinating, the growth of human civilization perfectly counterbalanced the natural cooling cycles to give us this period of extreme climate stability. Which is extraordinary. So there's a fine balance and equilibrium. Well, it also gives me hope that we can extend this. I mean, just look at what's happened over the past 9,000 years. If we simply, you know, counterbalance the cooling that's going on with just the right amount of human activity, we can extend this period of climate stability. It does it take much to upset the equilibrium of the planet? Well, especially now that there's seven and a half billion of us, yes, we have to be much more careful about our human activities so that we perfectly balance off the... Uh, so, so almost we're sitting on a... On a knife edge, definitely. On a very fine knife edge. Yes. And this would indicate, uh, to me at least, that this did not happen by blind chance. What's the main purpose of my book, Weathering Climate Change, is yeah. saying this is not a fluke, it's not an anomaly, this is something that requires incredible divine fine-tuning. Mm in order to make this possible, and it's in the biblical context, God wants to redeem a huge population of human beings. For that to be possible, there has to be this period of extreme climate stability. Now, now, now you're talking like a Bible believer. Have you always been a, a Christian and a Bible believer? No, I was not raised in a Christian home. Uh, I became a Christian through my astrophysics. Uh, or tell me about your home. Well, not I, a Christian home. Uh, it was a moral home. My parents definitely believed in the morality that's taught in the Bible. Yes. Eternal life thing is something that they rejected until late in their life. They did become Christians, but not until 30 years after I became a Christian. So what made you become a Christian? You were brought up in Canada. Uh, you were brought up in a moral home, but not in a believing home. But you became a believer, and you lead today a world-famous Christian organization. Well, it was, I got into astronomy when I was seven. I was a very <laughs> passionate student of astronomy. When you were seven? Yeah, I was reading five books on physics and astronomy a week. Yeah. And after several years, when I was 17, I finally became convinced, because of my studies in astronomy, the universe had a beginning. If the universe had a beginning, there has to be a cosmic beginner. So I began to search to find that cosmic beginner. And it began in all the wrong and, places. And, and almost every scientist today believes that the universe had a beginning. That's true, isn't it? Is it not? Yes, but a lot of them, that's kind of where they stop. They go, yes. don't go on and search for the cosmic beginner. I did. And I began to look for him in the writings of the philosophers. Didn't get very far with that approach. Then I began to look at the world's holy books. And it was a Gideon Bible that was presented to me in a Canadian public school uh, and I studied that for 18 months and realized this gets all the astronomy right. It gets all the science right. It predicts scientific discoveries thousands of years in advance. It never makes a mistake. This has to be a message from the one that created now, the universe. This is, this is extraordinary because you read the other so-called holy books. Right. 
And you got a, a Gideon's Bible. You were staying in a hotel? No, it was a Bible that was given to us in a public school. A couple of Gideons came into a public school, put two boxes on This was allowed in those days? It was allowed in those days. Uh, wouldn't and, happen today, probably. Well, today you've got to you know, distribute the Bibles off campus. But back then, they were allowed to come to the schools. They weren't allowed to speak. Mm. They couldn't say anything. No. They just put a couple of boxes on our teacher's desk and left. But I took home a Gideon Bible. It stayed on my bookshelf untouched for six years. Goodness. And then finally I picked it up, began to go through it, and realized this book is unlike any other book I've ever looked at. Well, it took me 18 months to become completely convinced this is the supernatural, inspired, inerrant word of the one that created the universe. And I got to give credit to the Gideons. They tell you oh, what you yes, need to do yes, yes. once you become convinced of that truth. Mm. So I followed their instructions. Thank God for the Gideons. And they don't let you off the hook. They got a place in their Gideon Bibles where you sign your name and date it, committing your life to Jesus Christ as Creator, Lord, and Savior. So I did that, and it still took me quite a few years after that before I actually met Christians. I was looking again in all the wrong places to find Christians but eventually I found them. And then you went to university. Uh, in Canada, it's hard to find Bible-believing churches. I found a lot of churches, but people there didn't believe mm -hmm. the Bible was That's the, the same God. in America. A lot but, of churches, not such a huge amount of Christianity. But then you went, what university did you go to? Well, I got my PhD at the University of Toronto. Mm. I did meet some committed Christians there just a few weeks before I was scheduled to leave to go to Caltech. So I got a little inkling there. When I arrived at Caltech, that's where I met really strong Bible-believing Christians. <laughs> at Caltech. In the astronomy department yeah. at Caltech. That's not far from here. And uh, they showed me how to find a good church. Uh, within seven months, that church put me on their pastoral staff to <laughs> equip people to use science yeah. as a tool. And, and so you found genuine, committed Christians at Caltech. Very committed Christians although I found a lot of them weren't equipped to share their faith with their peers. There's a lot of atheists at Caltech, too. Yeah, of course. And that's how I was discovered. Uh, Christian astronomers there saw me uh, sharing with these atheists and using yeah. science to convince them there was a God. Actually, I got to see some atheist astronomers come to Christ. That's amazing. They're at Caltech. It's a great story. Now, what did you study at Caltech? What did you do at Caltech? I was doing research on distant quasars and galaxies at short radio wavelengths. Yeah, that's a big help. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I was studying the energy mechanisms yeah. inside these big galaxies and quasars, mm. uh, trying to figure out why they're so bright and uh, why they vary in brightness the way they do. We now know it's all due to supermassive black holes, uh, but back then it was considered a mystery. And so you were brought up in a home of unbelief, a moral home, but unbelief. You read a Gideon's Bible. God spoke to you through the reading of the Word because mm -hmm. you discovered that the Word was in harmony with science. Then you become a specialist in studying the fine-tuning of the universe. And you've discovered that the universe is not only fine-tuned out there, it's fine-tuned right here on the planet. It's fine-tuned everywhere, all the way down to the fundamental particles. No matter what size scale you look at, you see overwhelming evidence for fine-tuning to make our existence possible, but especially to make our redemption from evil possible. 
I believe the whole universe, everything on the earth, has been fine-tuned by God to eradicate evil and suffering mm. once and for all. Yeah, we, can, we say amen to this, and uh, our friends at Loma Linda would say amen to this. Uh, we, believe, we believe that there's a great God, and he, and he has entered human history in the person of His Son. Yes. Who is the active agent in creation. He's the creator. He did yes, all he this. Yes, He is. Right. And, yes, he, the world was made by Him and through Him. Let's get back now to uh, climate change on the planet. Yes. Now, for a period of time during the period of human civilization, through fine-tuning, uh, the temperature has been wonderfully matched. But during the last hundred, hundred years, the temperature has gone up one degree Celsius. Is it one degree or more? One degree Celsius. Not more than that? Well, it's continuing to go up, but as of uh, 2019... Yes. Uh, compared to the year 1900, one yes. degree centigrade. And this can throw us into a disaster if it continues to go up. Well, for example, about half of the summer ice of the Arctic ice cap has disappeared in the last 35 years. Now, I, w I want you to say this again because I have some folks who, they say to me, no, you can't believe this. This is, this is sort of a fake news. The Arctic ice cap has decreased by how much? Uh, by about half. And uh, if that were to continue, in other words, if we continue to warn the planet, yes. it could completely disappear. If it completely disappears, we're going to get a lot more snow falling on the Canadian north and Siberia. Both of those regions today are deserts. They only get about 10 inches of precipitation per year, which is why they don't have accumulating ice. But if we were to double that to 20 inches, even though the, both those regions become warmer, uh, you're going to get an accumulation of snow and ice. And the last time that happened, all of Canada was covered with more than 3,000 feet thickness of ice. How many feet? 3,000 feet thickness, and the ice actually came all the way down into Southern California. Uh, now, this, this, this is not fiction, is it? We have evidence that this did happen. Well, just look at Yosemite Valley. That, of course. That was carved out. Carved out, yes. Yeah, by the last ice age melting. Yes. So... The evidence is everywhere, and uh, we've known we've been in this Ice Age cycle. Uh, but what the good news is this. Mm. There are things we can do to maintain climate stability at least for another 1,000 years, maybe 1,500 years. Mm. Uh, can things I... we can do that would actually boost the world economy, stabilize the climate, everybody wins, and there's no need for the politicians to get involved in this. That'd be great. Let me just let me just give you a text here. Sure. Now, I've got no idea what you think about this, but I was reading this this morning. It says in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 18. Now, uh, I don't know what you think about this, but personally, from a study of the Scriptures, I believe that we're living in the last era. Mm -hmm. now, this is my personal belief. That's why uh, I, I do what I do. It says here, the nations were angry and your wrath has come. And the time of the dead that they should be judged, Revelation 11:18, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, now you know it as well as I do, I'm sure, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Bible prophecy seemed to indicate that man would get the capacity to interfere with the earth to the extent that he would 
put the very survivor, survivability of the earth in, in question. Well, Isaiah speaks about this as well, and I believe that could really happen. That it could be a lot more uh, damage to our environment will have to take place before people wake up to their senses. I'm pre-millennial, so maybe it's going to take the return of the Lord to actually bring into effect these things that would actually stabilize the climate while boosting the world economy. Uh, so yes, it's possible that things could get worse before they get better. And, and so when people say uh, there's no such thing as climate change, um, they're not really giving a great deal of consideration to this text, at least. Yeah, and I think what's interesting, in the last year, I've seen that people across the political spectra yes. are now agreeing the global warming is real, mm. where the debate is, what's causing that? There's still a big debate whether human activity is mostly responsible, um, but I'm finding, at least in the scientific community, there is now a consensus that human activity is the predominant factor, but not the only factor. So you think that human activity in the last hundred years, during the days of the industrial age, could be pushing us over the edge as far as climate change is concerned? That's possible, but it's a whole lot more complicated than just looking at carbon dioxide. Oh, it is? I think that's where there's been a lot of confusion. So what should we look at beside this, this stuff we got on? Well, you I... should be looking at methane. You should be looking at nitrous oxide. You should be looking at soot and carbon. I think one reason why the polar ice cap is melting as mm -hmm. fast as it is, it's not just the greenhouse gases. It's all that black carbon soot being deposited on that ice, which absorbs heat from the sun. And there's other factors as well. It's one of the things I'm trying to make clear in my book, Weathering Climate but Change. But these are human factors. They're all human factors, but they're complicated. And I think we're at great risk in trying to stabilize the climate of putting into effect something that has unintended consequences. So again, I think we need a, an interdisciplinary approach to this. But we're giving away a free chapter in Weathering Climate Change, which basically talks about how we need to be careful about unintended consequences of what we think are good actions. And, uh, uh, be specific. What could be some of the, the bad things that people could do to try to stabilize the climate? Well, one is we need to stop all lumbering and preserve the forests because they soak up greenhouse gases. And when they're not taking into account is old trees are dying and when they die, they release carbon dioxide to the atmosphere and they don't grow that fast. We actually should be careful about harvesting at least some of these old trees while they're still healthy, turn them into furniture and wood and yep. homes, and then make sure we replace those with younger trees that are much more efficient at pulling greenhouse gas of the atmosphere. This is a very balanced concept. It is. Well, for one thing, you make the most money if you use this approach in lumbering. Because some people say we should stop all uh, lumbering, stop cutting down all trees. Uh, what about what's happening down in Brazil and so forth? Well, it's a mistake to cut down the Amazon forest and replace it with pasture land. That's the worst thing we can do. That's disaster, isn't it? That's disaster. The soil can't support that. And the greenhouse gases you pull out will be much reduced. And this is happening, isn't it? It's happening. But what I'm arguing for is we can have what I call responsible lumbering of the Amazon forest or we're pulling out these old trees, mm -hmm. replacing with young trees, we can actually make the Amazon more productive in terms of the Brazilian economy 
and mm. more productive in pulling greenhouse what gas. What do the young trees do that the old trees can't do? Well, they grow much faster than the older trees. Therefore, they're pulling more greenhouse gas of the atmosphere. They're also less susceptible uh, to pests and lightning strokes and droughts, which means they're less likely to die. Keep in mind, when a tree dies, it decays and releases greenhouse gases. Yes. You want to harvest the tree before it gets to that point. Um, now, this is a very delicate point that I'm going to bring up. What about the cows? We like cows. Well, my, my wife said, she was brought up on a cow farm in Australia. She said, don't say anything about the cows. She said, I like the cows. Well, I'm, I'm with her in that sense, is that <laughs> one reason why we've had this period of climate stability, yeah. while the astronomical cycles were cooling the planet, we domesticated cows, and cows release a lot of greenhouse gas in the atmosphere, and that caused the uh, warming effect to counterbalance the cooling effect. Now, however, given that uh, we have industrial activity that's pushing a lot more of these greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, we might be wise to consider replacing the cows with, say, ostriches and emus. Australia's got emus. Yeah, millions of them. Um. <laughs> and so, because... Now, but why, how much stuff do the cows put out? They're, uh, I'm told they're a big polluter, are they not? They are a major contributor to our, the global warming that we see on planet. Really major? They're, they're significant. I'm not saying they're the biggest factor, but no. they are a large factor. And if we were to replace our dependence on uh, beef with, say, ostrich meat, number one, the ostrich meat is just as iron-rich as the mm -hmm. beef. It's healthier for you. Less fat. A lot less fat, a lot less cholesterol. And they emit less than 2% of the greenhouse gases that cows emit. Moreover, you don't need to cut 2%. down as many. Less than 2%. Less than 2% of the cows. Right. Amazing. You don't need as much land to raise uh -huh. these ostriches, so you don't have to cut down forests to raise them. Yeah. However, there's one caveat. Mm. They need human attention. Cows mm. you can ignore. Yeah, not ostriches. Not ostriches. Certainly not emus. Uh, but if you give them human attention, mm. uh, they'll be healthy, they'll be productive, you'll make a lot of money. Yeah. And it's much healthier. This is a win-win example. It's a great People idea. People get more money, uh, it's healthier for the human population, and it'll be a big factor in restoring uh, climate let, stability. Let me just say a few words, and then if you could comment on them, if you don't mind. Coal-burning electricity plants, vehicles, planes, reflectors in space, uh, whales, the Sahara Desert, etc., etc. Well, I have two chapters. I got these out of your book. Yeah, it's in Weathering <laughs> Climate Change and basically yeah. making the point there's a number of things we can do uh, that will restore climate stability and actually produce more income for the peoples of the world. I think what's driving this debate, you've got politicians and scientists saying, we have a, a, an impending catastrophe here. We need to be prepared to make draconian economic sacrifices. Stop driving work. cars, yeah. shut down all of our factories, stop burning coal. Mm -hmm. You can't enforce that. No, you can't. Telling people to live on less money really doesn't work very well. No. But if you can provide them with solutions that will in increase their standard of living and at the same time stabilize the climate, I don't know of a politician in the world that's going to vote against that. Let's go for it, and we do that. And I would also argue this is a biblical principle. God told us in Genesis and Job 
We are responsible to manage the planet for our benefit and the benefit of all life. What he tells us in Job is he's provided us with the resources to fulfill that command. We need to trust God and look for those solutions that are simultaneously ethically uh, beneficial and economically beneficial. Tell me about the whales, because that sort of blew me away, the whales. Well, people looked at whales and say they're the biggest animals on the planet. Look at all the carbon dioxide they believe yeah, breathe into the atmosphere. Yeah. Maybe it's a good thing we are close to wiping out the whales. Maybe we should stop trying to restore the whales. It was an Australian study that revealed, yes, whales breathe out a lot of carbon dioxide, but they also defecate soluble iron minerals on the surface of the ocean <laughs> that fertilizes the phytoplankton. And for every ton of carbon dioxide they breathe into the atmosphere, they remove four tons of carbon dioxide by fertilizing the phytoplankton. Astounding. And when you fertilize the phytoplankton, you get more zooplankton, you get more fish. So there's more food uh, for the whales, there's more food for us, there's more food for the entire marine ecosystem. This is an economic benefit. Let's bring the whales back to where they were 300 years this ago. This is evidence for the Creator. It is. It's all been designed. Now, as a Christian and as a scientist, Dr. Ross, what is your hope for the future? Well, my hope for the future is that we'd be able to sustain this climate stability long enough that we could see every people group in the world hear and respond to the gospel. Mm. I mean, this is the biblical message. God created this planet so that the full number of humans he intends to redeem would be redeemed. I'm convinced we need climate stability to fulfill the Great Commission, to take the good news of salvation to all the people groups of the world. Do you plan one day to live forever? Yes. Not in this life, but the next life. We need to realize what's unique about Christianity. It's a two-creation model. One creation that God uses to eradicate evil and suffering once and for all. Yes. To be replaced by a second creation where evil and suffering will never exist again. That's our eternal home. And we We're say, simply passing through. We say amen and amen. And it's been our great privilege to have you with us today. And we thank you with all our hearts been great having you with us today, friend. You've been listening to the Carter Report and our special guest has been Dr. Hugh Ross. We've been talking about climate change and we've been talking about the coming of a brand new world. Please write to me, John Carter, Post Office Box 1900, Thousand Oaks, California, 91358. Also, we're going to put up reasons to believe. We want you to see it and feel free to contact Dr. Ross and his colleagues, we have reasons to believe that God lives and that Jesus is coming. And so, Dr. Ross, thank you so much. My pleasure. And until next time, thank you for joining us. And God richly bless you. Bye for now. In this series, John Carter will provide the answers to life's most interesting questions. Seven great signs of the apocalypse. If the dead are unconscious, who are the beings that pretend to be the dead? Is there such a person as the devil? What is the essence of Antichrist? 
What is the root cause of this deadly malaise? America was founded by people who were opposed to the union of church and state. But if there's a God who loves us, then the future is bright with promise. For a gift of $100 US or 140 Australian, this 13 DVD series, Prophecy Speaks, will be yours. Call the number or visit our website. For a copy of today's program, please contact us at P.O. Box 1900, Thousand Oaks, California, 91358. Or in Australia, contact us at P.O. Box 861, Terrigal, New South Wales, 2260. This program is made possible through the generous support of viewers like you. We thank you for your continued support. May God richly bless you.